Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of the Sermon on the Mount, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. Now, in the previous broadcast, I was talking about Matthew chapter 5, and I was mainly focusing on the verses between Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, and verse 48. But in this program, what I would like to do is focus on two specific verses, and that is found in verse 31 and verse 32. In the last program, I spoke about them from one point of view, and in this program, I would like to talk about them from a more popular, common point of view. Beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, it says, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or fornication or sexual immorality or adultery, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what I explained in the previous program was that a man would increase the amount of adultery in the world. He would contribute to the sexual immorality in his culture. And because of that, it's not a good idea for him to divorce his wife. That's what I was talking about in the previous program. But that's normally not how this verse is used. Normally, it's used in a different context. Normally, it's used in order to deal with the questions related to divorce and remarriage. That's normally what people use this verse for. Now, I will tell you in advance, as I mentioned in the previous program, that these verses say something totally different from what we have in this translation. Now, they also say something different from what we have in the Greek translation, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But I just want you to know that I do have an answer to these questions, and the answer is not going to be found by trying to come up with some alternative interpretation of these verses. That's not what I'm going to do. But before I do that, I would like to tell you or remind you how these verses are used today, how people will apply these in people's lives or in their own lives today. You see, divorce and remarriage is a big subject. It's a very important subject. It's an important subject in the church. It's an important subject in the world. But of course, it seems to be more important in the church than it is in the world in many cases. But what I want you to see here is that what people will tend to do is they will look at this and they will say this. If you are a woman who is divorced, if that has happened to you, then you must now be properly informed. You must understand that if you ever get remarried, then you will be committing adultery and your future husband will also be an adulterer. And you will live in adultery, and because you are doing this willfully, without any repentance, perhaps, because you have this attitude that maybe you know better than God, you obviously will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. There is no way that God is ever going to allow you to be in his presence. This is the position that many people take. 
even when there's some sense of uncertainty with regards to this, there are many women who will live their lives refusing to remarry because of their concern that maybe this would be the case. Maybe they would be guilty of adultery and so they do not want to commit adultery. In general, a man is not going to be affected by this verse to the extent where they would use this as a reason not to divorce their wife. They wouldn't worry about that. So I'm going to proceed and talk about this from the more common point of view, and that is that a woman will then not know how to live her life afterwards because of the risk of going to hell in the event that you remarry somebody. So what do a lot of women do? Well, I have found that a lot of women will just simply not get remarried. They may still engage in inappropriate relationships, but they won't remarry. They won't handle it that way. I suppose they may feel as though they can ask for forgiveness on that basis or something like that. But that's one way that women will often handle this that I personally have found. But another way that I have found that women will deal with this is to just simply ignore the verse and say, I don't care what God says, and then they get remarried, and then they just kind of hope that everything will work out, and if it doesn't, then that's fine, they can divorce, and then they can be clean and holy before God again, that kind of thing, where they just don't really care. And they would just assume, get married, and go ahead and put themselves at eternal risk in the event that this is actually the case, which I don't believe, but this is the kind of struggle that people deal with. Now, There is a lot of opportunity for condemnation. There's a lot of opportunity for concern because if you are a woman who has been divorced, you are so unclean that you will defile any man who you may want to have an intimate relationship with. And this is how divorced women are often looked at in the church. They're often looked at as being an individual who is so defiled because they were divorced, regardless of the circumstances, unless, of course, we can find a legitimate one in our opinion. But in general, they are looked at in this way and they feel it and they know it. And they will turn away, not only from the church, but they will turn away from the Lord Jesus because of the condemnation that they will never be able to overcome. There is no alternative in life, for people in those kinds of situations at all. So I believe that this is a very serious matter. I really do. Now, in many cases, when people have difficult verses, verses that seem to say something that doesn't make any sense, or whatever the concern may be, sometimes people answer these uncertainties by saying things like, well, in the original language, it says this. That's very common when people are teaching through the New Testament. They will say things like, well, now, in the Greek... It says this, and I value that. I value that a lot. But in this case, we're not going to be able to say that because in the Greek, it does say this. It's pretty good. This is a pretty good translation from the Greek. The problem, though, in this case, is that Matthew did not write his gospel in Greek. When he wrote his gospel, he wrote it in Hebrew. Not very many people are aware of this, but it is the case. We have a lot of historical evidence that we can look to that will give us some degree of confidence so that we can say that it was written in Hebrew. And if you consider who Matthew was writing to, he was writing to the Jews. Many scholars will agree on that. They will look at his gospel very carefully. And there are many reasons why they would suggest that. But if he did, well, you definitely would never write to a Jew, especially 
about things that are spiritual in nature. You would never speak to a Jew about the living God or the Messiah without using the language of God, without using the holy language, the language of Hebrew. In the first and second century B.C., one of the early fathers of the church, Papias, wrote that Matthew collected the words in the Hebrew language and each translated them as best he could. The early church father, Papias, he gives us a good testimony concerning Matthew's gospel in Hebrew. And he tells us also that Matthew wrote it in Hebrew and people translated it as best they could. Now, this is a very important statement, and I will come back to this in a minute, why it is so important to understand that people translated as best they could. It's because they had a hard time translating, and I'll explain why in just a moment. But I want you to see that. Now, there are several different manuscripts that have survived, and they are available in various museums throughout the world, several manuscripts that are written in Hebrew, that do have a lot of credibility within them that shows that they probably are not translations from the Greek. And it just so happens that I have a copy of one of these manuscripts, and I use it on occasion to answer important questions that I believe justifies the time of going into the manuscript that I have and translating it. It's very difficult to find the time to do that because I have other obligations, but On occasion, I'm able to take the time to do that, and this is one of those circumstances where I really wanted to get an answer to this question because my concern is not so much divorce and remarriage. In this case, what my concern was was that Jesus was suggesting that the penalty for adultery or sexual immorality was divorce, and to me, that would be a violation of the Mosaic Law because according to the Mosaic Law, the penalty for adultery or sexual immorality was death in this case. It wasn't divorce. And so when I read these verses in Matthew, I can be concerned that maybe Jesus was saying something contrary to Moses. And that was my own personal motivation to look into these verses with a little bit more depth. And the only way that I could acquire that was by looking into Matthew's gospel that he wrote in Hebrew. Now, before I give you the translation from Hebrew, which does say something very different. So different that you might wonder how they even came up with a translation that, that we have right now. But before I do that, I want to deal with an important question, and that is, can we be divorced? I mean, can we get divorced? Is there a legitimate reason to get divorced or an illegitimate reason? Is there any such thing as a legitimate or illegitimate reason? People want to know about this, and I can appreciate that, not because they are necessarily looking for a reason to get divorced. I'm not intending to get into a discussion like that. All I want to do is tell you that according to the law of Moses, there were some legitimate reasons for divorce. In fact, there was a reason that God gave in the law that he would require a divorce to take place. That circumstance was in the event that you were a man and you married a woman who was the servant of another man's household. If that was the case, and even if you had children, if you decided that you no longer wanted to be the servant of that man in his household then you could leave, but you would have to divorce your wife and leave your wife and children behind. That was mandated by the law of God. But beyond that, there were some legitimate circumstances when people could divorce. Now, for the man, they could divorce for any reason, and there is a very important reason why a man would have to have that right in the society that was established by the law in the nation of Israel. The number one reason why a man would have to have the right to divorce under any circumstances 
was to ensure that he would be the authority in his household. He would be the head of his household. If he does not have the right to divorce, then he is going to have to provide for whatever resources his wife and perhaps his children want to have in order to do, say, whatever they want. And he could say nothing about it. They could totally abuse the man and treat him like he was less than dirt. And in many cases, when people take this position or make this assumption that their spouse has no right to ever leave them, they can use that as an excuse to treat their spouse horribly. This is a reality that we deal with even to this day. But from a woman's point of view, did she have the right to divorce her husband? Absolutely. The law said that a woman had the right to leave her husband. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 and 11, just as an example, this is Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 and 11, a woman could leave her husband in the event that he did not provide her with food, clothing, or marital intimacy. Then she could divorce her husband. And so there were opportunities for divorce, and the law did allow for it. Now, I do not believe that the Lord wanted this for people. I don't think that he wants this for people now either. I believe that he would definitely like a man and woman to stay together. But because of the sin or the hardness of our hearts, one, the other, or both, unfortunately, this is something that we have to allow for in order to sustain society in some cases. So that's one question. The other question I'd like to deal with is, can we remarry? Well, according to the law, there were only two circumstances that God said you could not remarry. And so I believe that as long as you remarry outside of these two circumstances, then according to the law, you have not sinned. The first law is found in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 7. In Leviticus chapter 21, verse 7, it says that a Levite cannot marry a woman who was divorced. That's what he says. So if you are not a Levite, then you can marry a woman who has been divorced. Now, shouldn't that give you some indication that if you marry a woman who is divorced, shouldn't that tell you that you are not automatically going to go to hell, that you are committing adultery? That is the law of Moses. That's what God said through Moses. And I don't believe that Jesus would say something that would be contrary to the law of Moses. He would certainly add laws to the law of Moses, but I explained that in the previous program, that the purpose for that was to lead a person to the point of discovering that they really do need the mercy of God. So that's the first circumstance. Now, the second circumstance is in the event that you divorce your spouse, and then they remarry, and then they divorce that spouse. If they do that, then you cannot remarry them. And so if you are a man and you divorce your wife, your wife marries some other man and then divorces him, you cannot remarry her. That would be against the law. She can marry anybody else. That would not be a violation of the law of Moses, but you certainly could not marry her. Those are the only two real restrictions concerning remarriage. So in the law of Moses, if you want to look at that as the ultimate standard for right and wrong, good or evil, whether you sin or not sin, that's the law. If you're not aware of these things, you should read the law. You should study the law. Don't just take my word for it. You look into it. You take the time to study the law and look into the law. Now, again, my concern with regards to this was, is Jesus suggesting that adultery is not as bad as it really is? 
is adultery a cause for death or is it a cause for divorce? That was what had motivated me. And so I looked into the Hebrew text of Matthew, and what I found was a verse that was definitely very hard to translate. And I want you to know that I gained a new appreciation for what Papias wrote when he said that each translated them, referring to the words that Matthew wrote, as best he could. I definitely have a great appreciation for what he said, and I can understand the struggles that the people who were trying to translate Matthew's gospel into Greek would have had. This is why. The reason why is because Matthew's Hebrew was not that good. That's why. I mean, he did know enough. He was able to convey what I believe he wanted to convey. But I can tell you that Matthew was not very well skilled in Hebrew. Now, should this be too much of a surprise? Absolutely not. This should be expected. It would be a surprise if his Hebrew was good. That would be a surprise. Why would I say that? The reason why I would say that is because Matthew was a tax collector. He was a tax collector. He collected taxes for the Romans. Now, if he's a tax collector and he's collecting for the Romans, do you think the Jews would like to spend a lot of time with him? No, they wouldn't want to spend a lot of time with him because he was considered to be in collaboration with the enemy. And so he's not going to have many opportunities to speak with the Jews in his neighborhood. If he did, then what language would he speak to them in? Well, chances are he would speak to them in Aramaic, because Aramaic was the language that was used in the marketplace at that time. Hebrew was only used in the synagogues. That's the only place that the Hebrew language was used at that time. For the most part, it was used in the synagogues because that was the only language that you would use to speak of the living God and of the things of God. And you would need to know that language in order to read the scriptures and speak about the scriptures and study the scriptures. But would Matthew be in the synagogue? No, he wouldn't be in the synagogue. That would be unacceptable. From a cultural perspective, from a societal perspective, the people would not want him there. That would not be the case. And so when would he ever have the opportunity to really develop his skills with the Hebrew language? It would be an obstacle. It would be a serious challenge for him to be able to accomplish that. And so considering that he took the time to write what he did, I believe he deserves some credit for that, that he should be recognized as a man who may not have known much, but he knew enough and he put in the effort to learn that language well enough to be able to share what Jesus said to him with whoever was willing to read what he wrote. Now, when studying these verses, I can see the struggle that he would have had. I can see the struggle there. I can understand why he would find it difficult to write some of these things down, and I can see it, and to me it's acceptable. But, you know, one of the interesting things that I found that he wrote at the end of this verse is that he said certificate of divorce using Latin. He didn't even use Hebrew. This is at the end of verse 31 where he wrote, Libella repudio, which is a Latin phrase translated as bill of divorce that he stuck in there. You see, divorce was not even the primary subject of these verses that he wrote. They were actually an afterthought. They were the least important point that he was trying to express. But the fact that he wrote these words transliterated into Hebrew, it was a transliteration into Hebrew that was then translated into Greek and then it was translated into English that we have available today. But 
What I want you to understand is, is that he struggled with writing this out, and on occasion he had to use Latin. Latin was the language that the Romans were using for a lot of their literature at that time, and so I would expect him to know Latin, especially because of his association with the Romans. But I found it very interesting to see his effort, and I really wanted to mention that it was definitely a very good one. Now, I'm going to give you a thought-for-thought translation. I'm not going to give you a word-for-word because it really is awkward. But I am going to try to describe the thought-for-thought process that he is expressing. Beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, he says, Still Jesus said to his disciples, You heard what was said before of a husband who was bereaved over the leaving of his wife. He will give her things to take to include a divorce. And I am saying to you that if a husband is bereaved over his wife's leaving, and among the things given to her is also a divorce, that if he says she left to commit adultery, he is the adulterer, and if he takes her back, he will commit adultery. What he said here was that Jesus was giving an example of a story where a woman left her husband because she wanted to, for whatever reason. He was very upset about it, and so he accused her of committing adultery. That's the situation. It's an accusation. But, because there is no evidence, it can technically be considered to be a false accusation. Now, false accusations are very serious accusations. If you make a false accusation, then according to the law, you are to be punished with the same punishment that the person would have received if they were found guilty, if what you accused them of was true. So what Jesus says is that he is the adulterer, or he should experience the penalty of an adulterer. He should experience that because he has made a false accusation. That's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It is not about divorce. It is about someone making a false accusation. Now, if you can trust me on this one, I know it's going to require a lot of trust because you probably don't know Hebrew, you don't have access to this manuscript. There are many complications with me trying to bring this out and explain this. But if you can consider that for just a moment, assume that I'm telling you the truth. If you assume that, then you can have a greater appreciation for the next verse because what he says right after that is, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. It follows very well from the idea of making false accusations. You shall not make any false accusations, whether it is before a court or just doing so outside of the court. That it's one thing to do it before the court. That would be a violation of the law. But he is also saying that you don't want to do it outside of a court of law. That that would be just as bad, just as evil as doing it in a court of law and that you would be guilty of the same. Guilty of the very thing that you accuse someone of in the sense that you should receive the same punishment. That is consistent with his entire message, and it prepares you for the next statement, which has to do with bearing false witness, making false vows. I believe that that's what he was talking about. That was what his intent was. This subject of divorce or adultery or whatever is not here. If you want to know what the Lord thinks about divorce and adultery, he has a lot to say about it. But he says it in other places. It's not 
here in Matthew chapter 5. That is my conclusion concerning verses 31 and 32, that it has to do with false accusations. It has nothing to do with adultery or divorce. Now, again, this is consistent with the following verses. He begins with false accusations, and then he follows it up with the issue of making oaths, which are related to making false accusations, testifying before trials. But, of course, in this case, what he's going to talk about is making agreements with other people, is making commitments with other people. These verses are related. In the next program, I'm going to talk about the subject of making oaths and swearing. And this is important because in the law, the Lord our God told us to make oaths. He told us to swear in his name. And so I am a little bit concerned about the translation that we have in English because it gives us the impression that we are to never swear. We are to never make oaths, but instead we are just to say yes, yes, or no, no. And I believe that this can be a contradiction a contradiction with the Mosaic Law, and so I personally needed to find an answer to this question, and I found the answer to my question in the Gospel of Matthew that he wrote in Hebrew. But, you know, with relevance to divorce, this is a very important subject. You know, divorce is often considered to be the unpardonable sin, and those who have been divorced are some of the most rejected people in Christianity today. Now, when I explain what this verse says, when I give this explanation, I have found that most of the people who I explain this to are not that interested. They don't, they don't really care. I believe that the reason why they don't really care about this explanation is that they are more concerned about what other people think of them than they are concerned about the truth. And so if you are in a situation like this, I would like to encourage you to pursue the truth more than the acceptance of others. Rest in the acceptance of Christ Jesus because of what he has accomplished for you. And I will continue in the next broadcast. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937 or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.